Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today is impeachment day. I don't know if we're supposed to have some sound effects. I'm going to see if the producers can throw some sound effects around impeachment day. We need to play some Boosie, some I-M-P-E. I don't even know how to spell it, but you get the point. The House of Representatives will begin impeaching President Trump today. Again, the first time in American history that an American president has been impeached twice. As I've said here before, impeachment is the right step. And my hope is that the House will send impeachment articles to the Senate once Democrats are in the majority and Biden-Harris administration is sworn in so that we can convict Donald Trump and include as a part of his sentence conditions that include he no longer be able to run for president. This is unprecedented and constitutionally an open question as to whether or not you can forbid someone for running for president in the future, but otherwise eligible under the Constitution. But this isn't the time for congressional Democrats to play constitutional lawyer. It's time for them to do the right thing. And that's what the House is doing today. But what I wanted to talk about today, before I get to my brother and NFL legend, London Fletcher, I wanted to talk about House Republicans. As you hear Sadie in the background, she wants to talk about House Republicans too. Specifically news that House Republicans were pushing back on recently installed metal detectors from members before they go to the House floor to vote. Now, anyone who has been in just about any government building has had to go through a metal detector. And before last week's failed coup attempt, House members generally could walk around metal detectors and there were no metal detectors for members to go through before they went to the House floor to vote. Of course, that's changed because you have members like Alabama's Mo Brooks, for example. There were active players in exciting riots last week that created violence and who arguably should be at least investigated, if not in jail. So it stands to reason that House leadership decided that it was important to know if their colleagues are also armed, if they're going to join their colleagues on the House floor. Think of it this way. If you had a coworker who you knew, there was a strong likelihood they were armed, they don't agree with you, and they incited a riot last week, wouldn't you want them to go through a metal detector before coming into your office with you? My answer is yes. Hell yeah. The more obvious question is, why would you need a gun to go vote? You don't. But what's really at play here is Republicans have elected a caucus full of the kind of people who don't like metal detectors, incite riots, and won't impeach a president who put their colleagues' lives in danger and incited a failed coup attempt. And as much as some Republicans want to wish Trump away next week, they're very much the party of Trump. Look no further than the House Republicans who incite riots and need a Glock to vote. And that's that on that. Now on to my interview with my brother and future NFL Hall of Famer, London Fletcher. Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today I got my good friend and arguably the greatest linebacker of all time, or at least one of them. Lawrence Taylor may have something to say about that, but I got my friend on here, London Fletcher. What's going on, my brother? How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. You you had it correct, though. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but you know me well, man. <laughs> so it's so it, it's in in your order. Who are the top five linebackers to play the position? You know, uh, well, I won't say order because it's hard. Definitely Lawrence Taylor, Ray Lewis, um, Mike Singletary. For me, growing up, I was a huge Mike Singletary fan. Um, myself <laughs> did. Uh, well, that's four. The fifth one. Do I want to go old school? I'll say uh, either Derek Brooks or 
Derek Brooks a good name. I know I'm probably forgetting somebody. Derek Brooks, who? Uh, Jack Lambert. With your age, I thought you would say like Dick Buckus or something like that. <laughs> you know, I, I never really saw Dick Buckus. <laughs> um, I, I remember Jack Lambert because growing up in Cleveland as a huge, huge Browns fan, I did not like the Pittsburgh Steelers and Jack Lambert was always making plays against us. So Jack Lambert would have to be in that in that group as well. <laughs> well, that's what's up. Well, we start each of our episodes by having our guests walk through the arc of their career. So for folks who don't know you, you're a 16 year NFL vet, Super Bowl champion, four time pro bowler, which the pro bowl is just I don't even think that's indicative of how great you really are. And what's most impressive to me, you never missed a game in 16 seasons. Reflect on your career and particularly the things that you feel like contributed not only to your success, but your durability. You know, um, my career, as you mentioned, was a 16-year career. Coming from a Division three school, I played at John Carroll University. You don't get drafted in the NFL out of John Carroll. You don't have a 16-year NFL career out of John Carroll. So, you know, it was... It was Unparalleled my career, the uh, the opportunity that I got with the Rams as an undrafted free agent, Dick Vermeil gave me an opportunity to make that ball club. I ended up, uh, you know, being the rookie of the year for the Rams. My second year, I became a starter. We won the Super Bowl that year, part of the greatest show on turf. Played there for four years, um, went to two Super Bowls, lost to Tom Brady and the Patriots my last year in St. Louis. Went to uh, Buffalo for five years. And then finished my last seven years playing for Washington, the Washington football team. We were called the Redskins. <laughs> you know, um, had a tremendous career. You mentioned the, the four Pro Bowls. I definitely should have made a ton more Pro Bowls. Um, you know, it's a it's a situation where Pro, Pro Bowl is a popularity contest and how the votes go. It's not a it's not an exact science. Um, you know, I probably should have demanded a recount. <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I might still uh, demand a recap, but you know, I'm, I'm the thing about my career and being able to play in all those games, never missing one during my 16 year career. First and foremost, I was blessed with, um, you know, some God given, um, toughness um, the way God made me. I think I was, uh, you know, built for football with these legs and all the stuff I, I have going on, but also I never wanted to let my teammates down. I always wanted to be there for them. I always wanted to feel like they can count on me. I missed a game in, in, in high school due to injury, and I was miserable on the sidelines. And I said, I'm never going to miss another game. That's and, crazy. You know, yeah, during, during the grace of God and great trainers and listening to my body do, throughout my 16-year career, I was able to play every single game, and I missed one. Let me ask you this question. I mean, when you walk into training camp as an undrafted free agent, what's that feeling like? You go in, you go in there and you see all these guys from Penn State Miami, Notre Dame, people that, you know, you watch. Did you, were you nervous? Were you anxious? Or were you just going to go out there and say, I'm just about to crack all these heads. It don't matter who's in front of me. You know, it, there was some, uh, some trepidation. I was anxious, but at the same time, I also was confident in my abilities. And I, and I'll tell you how confident I was after the draft or the Rams called me and they wanted to um, bring me to their, what they call it, um, a rookie. It wasn't even a rookie minute camp. They wanted me to bring me in. They wanted to bring me into their mini camp as like a tryout. So when I get there, Charlie Army, who was the general manager of the St. Louis Rams back then, said they wanted to sign me. So once I got there, they're like, no, you know, we want to sign you. So back then, even if you weren't drafted, you got a you got a um signing bonus. So I'm like, well, mm. all right, you know, okay, cool. I'll sign with you guys, but you're gonna give me a signing bonus. He's like, 
no, we're not going to give you a sign of bonus, you know. So this Charlie Armin, we're in his, this conference room. He's on one side of the table. I'm on the other side. I'm like, no, you're giving me a signing bonus. I'm not, I'm not going to sign and not get a bonus. So he's like, well, we're going to, we're just giving you this opportunity or we can just send you back home. So I'm like, all right, man, let me, let me rethink this thing here. <laughs> so uh, I said, all right. You're negotiating with no leverage, man. You ain't had no leverage. Man, but listen, you, 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 don't, you never know unless you try. So um, <laughs> what I said to him is, okay, I'm going to sign this contract, but I will be back for more money. So I signed a one-year contract. I ended up uh, making the Rams team. I was the, How much you make your first year? So I don't have to Google it. Uh, back then, I, it was, uh, I think, 158000 So, I mean, this is 1998. Hey, I'm coming from making $0. So $158,000. Man, I thought I was rich. So um, I made the, the Rams. I was the rookie of the, of the year for that team. The next year... My contract was up, so you know, but I was exclusive right free agent. I couldn't go anywhere. I told him I'm not signing another contract until you give me some money. I told you I'd be back for some money, some money and a bonus. So um, they ended up giving me a, a signing bonus. They gave me some workout uh, incentives, workout bonus, and things like that. So uh, I held true to my my word, and I went back and I got my I got my bonus the next year. And uh, you know, Charlie, Charlie, there ain't nothing wrong with that. Hey man, you have to have confidence in yourself. <laughs> So let me ask you this question. You said you played against Tom Brady and Steve McNair. At the time, who was a better quarterback? And, and you saw them at the height. You saw them in the Super Bowl when they were primed and ready to go. And both of those games could have gone, you, you were a yard away from losing the Super Bowl, and you were one stop away from winning the Super Bowl against the Patriots. So who would you take right now if you had to take one in a big game? Well, obviously, Tom Brady. You know, you look at what Brady is has done and it, and continues to do. But at that point in time, you got to think when, when we played Brady in the Super Bowl, he was, I believe that was his second year in the league, if I'm not mistaken. And he wasn't the Tom Brady that he is now. He, he wasn't the... He was a game manager, wasn't he? He was like, I mean, he just got dimped him down right, the Right, exactly. He was more of a game manager. Their offense didn't have the... They weren't trying to do explosive plays. He wasn't asked to win the ball game. It was more or less, hey, don't lose the ball game. Steve McNair was a problem. I mean, he was a problem. Him and Eddie George, but McNair was the reason that the Titans were winning the ball games. Um, especially his toughness, his ability to hurt you running the ball, doing the things that he he did. We were concerned about McNair going into that game against the Titans. As far as when we played the uh, the Patriots, Brady wasn't like he wasn't our focal point. It was more hey. The focal point of their offense was more based on stopping their run. Their running back, uh, I think, was maybe Antoine Smith, stopping him, not allowing the trick plays and the gadget plays to beat us. But it was more, it was more, um, you know, Steve McNair back then was a bigger threat for us. I say he was he was a game manager and he led a game winning drive against us. So I probably need to recalibrate that too. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't our greatest uh, greatest moment, greatest drive um, from a defense standpoint. But you know, you look at him and. And where Tom has um, evolved and what he's turned into. And I played against him once I left um, St. Louis for five years in um, Buffalo. And I tell you what, his competitiveness is unmatched. You know, people ask me who's, who's the better quarterback between him and Peyton Manning. Peyton was more difficult to prepare for. Tom was more difficult to compete against or uh, play against, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Let's talk briefly about your transition from the field to the booth. It's not as easy as some fans think, but you've done it seamlessly. Talk about the work that went into your transition into commentary. Well, when I was still playing, I started to uh, get into broadcasting. My last four years, I started kind of doing some different things. I, I went to ESPN, did a bunch of shows for them, CBS Sports Network, which I work for now, NFL Network, did stuff for them. So all the different um, different things that I'm doing now, I was kind of interning, I guess you can say, while I was still playing or developing some skills while I was still playing. And then once I um, once I retired, I got hired by CBS and it's, it's, a, it's a different thing because, mm-hmm. you know, people think just because you play the game, you'll be able to talk about it. It's different when you're on television, you have to be able to present, you have to be able to um, do it in a succinct manner. Um, you know, you got to get used to a producer in your ear. It's a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of times when that camera comes on, people freeze up. So it's, it's just um, something that you, you have to work at and prepare. And hopefully you get to a situation where, they're going to allow you to grow. Yeah. That's what, that's what, um, that's what I, I mean. It's, it's awesome watching you guys. I mean, I had Brandon Marshall on the show and Brandon Marshall is just, he's so dope behind a microphone. And then one of your best, one of your best friends, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, Tony Romo is, is really, really, really good calling games. Let me ask you this. What, what what did you think about the national championship game? You're an Ohio boy. Um, and y'all don't deserve to be on the field with anybody in the sec, but what did you think about the national championship game this past Monday? There you, there you go. See, you, you, what, what you go to? You went to South Carolina? No, you went to Morehouse. I went to, I went to Morehouse and South Carolina. I'm a Gamecock through and through. Everybody knows I'm a Gamecock. You know, the, the national championship game, Alabama, they, they're just an unbelievable team. That offense, uh, one of the best offenses I've seen in college football. I will say this I was scared about uh, Alabama's offense because they are so explosive. I would have loved to see Trey Sermon stay in that game to see if their Ohio State could have possibly won a shootout and made it close. It would have definitely been a closer game if Trey Sermon was in the game just because Ohio State, they couldn't get their running game going the, the way they had yeah. when Sermon was in the game. You know, think about the Big Ten Championship and also the game at the semifinal game against Clemson. You know, Ohio State's defensive backs, they, they were outmatched when – and. You know, you look at uh. I mean, they they had a they have a first round draft pick over there on one corner, and uh, he he came in ready to guard Devontae, and I guess he learned how difficult it was. Yeah. Let me ask you this: You're a future hall. Well, are you in the hall yet? No, not yet, man. A college hall of fame, but right, not, I, not the pro uh, pro football hall of fame. You yeah. are. I, I, that's what I thought. You're a future NFL hall of fame. I know that's the case. When you're watching a college game, what are you looking for? Because I've had some NFL guys tell me they don't watch college football and some guys follow and some guys watch it closely. But do, first, do you watch college football? And second, what are you looking for when you watch it? Or is it just enjoyment? Oh, yeah. I, I watch a ton of college football, mainly Ohio State. When I'm watching a game, I'm just kind of just watching it as a fan, so to speak. But when it comes time to the draft and draft preparation and uh, doing draft shows, then I'll go back and, and analyze those different positions, those guys, and see you know, hey, what are, what are the skill sets that this guy this guy has that can you know translate to the National Football League? What are his strengths, his weaknesses? You know, whether it's a linebacker, um, you know, coverage, physicality, things like that. Um, running back, you know, um, how they division the their their explosiveness. So when I'm watching the game, I'm just watching it as a fan, as a uh, analyst. When it comes time for that, I'm analyzing them and giving my true assessment based Man, on I- that. I was watching a game and thought about you. I saw uh, the middle linebacker from Ohio State got matched up with Devontae Smith on a on a little seam or, or nah. <laughs> that was 
first, first of all, <laughs> one thing that would not have happened is I would have been that far behind behind Devontae Smith. I don't know. You would have you would have jammed him. Or you would have hit him inside a five or something. No, you can't because of the the defense that they were in. It was a cover three, and with four verticals, which is uh, the play that they ran, that weak side backer, Tuck Borland, he had to carry the uh, carry him on that vertical. There's a thing called ability alive, play recognition, all those different things. I would have saw Devontae Smith right there. Okay, alert for a verse. I would have already been running before uh, <laughs> Devontae Smith took off. So there's one thing. That's that's first and foremost thing that I would have did. Secondly, you have to, as a defense, a coordinator, you have to go into the plan, the game, knowing, hey, what are the possible places Matchups. that they can play this guy yeah. that are going to give us problems and give us the ability to change our defense. The defense coordinator for Ohio State, he didn't do a good enough job changing the defenses and giving his guys an opportunity to shut down Devontae Smith. So let's talk about the NFL playoffs. Uh, let's switch gears and let's walk through those matchups. How about this? Can the Rams stop Aaron Rodgers this year? And the Rams have one of the best defensive players I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and I'm not that old. I'm only 36, so I haven't watched it forever. You're only 36? You look older than that, man. See, there you go. Anyway. <laughs> Aaron Donald is one of the best defensive players. Aaron Donald's a grown man. Can the Rams stop Aaron Rodgers this year, though? I think they have a defense that can stop Aaron Rodgers when you look at Aaron Donald and and, and what he brings to the table. Jalen Ramsey, they're going to they're gonna match Jalen Ramsey up against Devontae Adams. That's going to be a great, great matchup. Those two guys, best on best. The Rams, they, they, they're the number one ranked defense or one of the best in a lot of different categories, whether it's stopping a run, Getting at the quarterback, stopping the pass, so they'll they'll have uh, guys that can mat, that match up well against Green Bay Packers steel players. At the end of the day, it's going to be predicated on can the Rams' offense do enough to uh, to beat the Packers. As a defensive guy, how do you prepare for a quarterback like Aaron Rodgers? Because I know you saw him, Peyton, and you played with Hall of Famer and Kurt Warner. What do you do to prepare for Aaron? Because he is one of the best ever. He is, um, you know, first and foremost as a defensive line. You got to be aware of the hard count. You know, he gets a lot of guys with the hard count offside. You really have to, I look at it as disrupt the other guys, disrupt the receivers, throw off the timing of his uh, his uh, routes and things like that to force him to hold the ball a little bit a little bit longer, allow your, your pass rush to get to him. That's how you're going to stop Aaron Rodgers. His talent, his, his skill set, if you can't allow him just to allow his receivers to have free reign, free releases, you have to um, disrupt the other guys. You're a former Bill, so I'm sure you can appreciate this, but can Lamar Jackson beat the Bills in the snow? Ooh, man, this is a Florida guy. Never played in the snow. <laughs> he's, all, he's already nervous about it. It's going to be tough. Uh, Buffalo. He got, that, he got that monkey off his back, though. That first victory off his back is huge. That was, that was key. Um, Buffalo's run defense, it leaves a lot to be desired. So you look at Baltimore and the way they can run the football, that definitely will be um, what they'll lean on. They have the players in, in, this, in the type of office that can that can go into Buffalo and um, and upset them. Who was the closest quarterback during your career to Lamar Jackson? Did you face anybody like him? Yeah, I, I went against Michael Vick. Um, you know, I thought Vick you were was, older than that. I thought you you, you were done in the eighties, weren't? <laughs> uh, that, no, I went against Vick. I went against Vick. Vick was definitely the closest because of the quick twitch. You know, there were there, yeah. there's been a lot of fast quarterbacks, but none. You see Lamar go from zero to sixty in a in an so instant. Same, same thing with Michael Vick. You know, the fastest guy 
on the football field with with the football in his hands on every snap. So I think Vic was uh, Vic was definitely the closest. Can the Browns take out the defending champs in Arrowhead? <laughs> Man, I'm a Cleveland guy, so my heart says I know. <laughs> my heart says yes, but my head says no way. That's the Chiefs, man, and all they have, the explosive playmakers they have on offense, Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid having extra time to prepare for you, it's going to be extremely difficult for, for the Browns going into Kansas City to, to uh, slow down those guys. And we've got the follow time matchup between Brady and Breeze in New Orleans. It could be either one of their last games. I doubt it, but it could be. How do you see that shaking out? As I look at this, this matchup, this will be the third time these teams have met both games. Neither game has been close. They both uh, have favored the uh, the Saints, and I still see it being that same type of way. The Saints, they have a defense. They have a cornerback. They can match up against the Bucs receiver. They have a pass rush. They can get to Brady. I don't think the Bucs secondary is that good. I think the Breeze, they'll be able to pick apart that secondary. And then Alvin Kamara, he's the X factor. So I think it'll be uh, the Saints winning that ball game again. Well, it's going to be another great week of football. And one of the things that I am going to pick your brain on now, because I know that you know this better than anybody, is the NFL draft. So if you're the Jacksonville Jaguars, is Trevor Lawrence a foregone conclusion over Justin Fields, or are you actually entertaining that? No, no, he's he's a foregone conclusion. <laughs> That's what at, I thought. Yeah, he, he is. And, and again, I'm, a, I'm an Ohio State fan, and I thought Justin had a, a really good season. I actually think Justin would benefit from going back and playing another year in college, but I don't, I don't know that he'll do that. But when you look at Trevor Lawrence, his size, his skills, the arm his speed, talent, his speed, the athleticism, he's what you look for in a, in a NFL quarterback, especially a young quarterback. Now the way the NFL is kind of trending, it's a foregone conclusion for the Jacksonville Jaguars. That's a fan base. That's a team that needs to put seats in a, uh, butts in the seats, he'll sell tickets. I think it's a foregone conclusion for them to uh, to draft Trevor Lawrence. Now, if you're the Jets, do you stick it out with Sam Darnold and trade down with a team that wants Justin Fields and draft for help, or do you just go with Justin Fields? What do you do if you're the Jets? Yeah, I, I don't know that uh, the Jets necessarily – there's a couple of different quarterbacks that um, can be in play at number two, the, the kid out of whoa, BYU. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, you taking Zach Wilson I, over Justin I, Fields? I, listen, from the smallest – He's in play. He's in play. And now they'll do a deep study, deep dive on him and Justin Fields and see. And there's also the like. kid from um, North Dakota State. North Dakota State, yeah. Um, uh, Trey Lance, is it? Trey yeah. Lance, yeah. Yeah. So they'll they'll look at those guys and evaluate their situation. I don't think Sam Darnold is a, a franchise quarterback per se because, first and foremost, injuries and, and turnovers, those are two things you can't have at the quarterback position. So, the Jets, they definitely need to draft another quarterback. Who that will be, it remains to be seen. Now, if somebody's going to offer the Jets a ton of um, picks and assets to move up to number two, yeah. and they still can get maybe another guy, uh, a quarterback that they kind of view in the same light and move down, that's something they'll look consider. But I don't think Sam Darnold is the future quarterback for the New York Jets. Hmm. Well, the Jets need something. I'm glad they got rid of that head coach up there, so now they can finally – Flourish, maybe. Uh, Devontae Smith was hands down the most dominant player in college football this year, but the most dominant wide receiver last year in college football was Jamar Chase. He set out this year. If you're a GM and your team needs a receiver and both Chase and Smith are on the board, how do teams make that decision between two players like that? 
Is it a gut? Is it fit? Is it interviews? How do you make a decision between two complete and utter beasts? Well, it better not be a gut feeling. It better be a situation <laughs> where, <laughs> where you, you've done a deep dive. Now, Jamar uh, Chase, he didn't play this year. So all you're basing your stuff off of him is last year's film. Now, he won the Blitnikoff a year ago, put up crazy numbers. From what I remember with, with uh, Jamar Chase, he's a, he's a better route runner than um, mm-hmm. Smith. You know, he's bigger better, too. Yeah, bigger guys, you can probably move him around a little bit more. It depends on the type of offense you're gonna you're gonna run. What do your scouts say about this guy? You've had guys who have been scouting these guys for the last two years. They've done a tremendous amount of work on these guys. So when you're doing your evaluation, who's the number one receiver on your board? Based on what I saw last year from uh, Chase, I would have him number one because I think he he's a better route runner. You can do a little bit more with him. There's been a ton of fast guys who've come into the National Football League. I mean, heck, the last couple of Alabama receivers all have been fast, you know, whether it's Jerry, Judy. Um, Rugs. Uh, yeah, it's a ton of guys that, that are fast, but how are they producing once they get to the National Football League? I would uh, I would have Chase as the, uh, the number one guy. So I want to talk about something as we kind of wrap up and get near the end of the show, but I want to talk about something that that has been kind of on my mind a lot, and that's these coaching vacancies and the 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 issue that the NFL has with with black coaches. We've got six coaching vacancies: the Jaguars, the Jets, the Chargers, the Falcons, the Lions, the Texans, and the Texans are a mess. Well, and the, Eric Bieniemy final and the Eagles seven now. Oh, and the Eagles. I forgot about Doug Peterson. Yeah. How you win the first Super Bowl? It's a hey, it's a business up there, man. They went that man won the first Super Bowl three years ago, and now he he already looking for a new job. But will Eric Bieniemy finally get his shot? I'm hearing Atlanta is a possible destination. But what are you hearing? You know, I, I think you um, when you look at seven openings, there are not seven other coaches that you can look at and say definitively are going to be a better head coach than Eric Bieniemy. I, I I feel like he'll get an, a head coaching opportunity. This year, I'm not sure which spot he'll land in, but I, um, you know, Philadelphia could be could be a, a spot for him. When you look at, you know, he he has a history. He played there. Um, he knows the owner. He's from that Andy Reid tree, so you know, I, I know that'll that'll play play into uh, Jeffrey Lurie's decision. So I can see him being a possibility with the uh, with the Eagles, or um, you know, maybe Atlanta, maybe Jacksonville. So. What's the most attractive of these spots? I mean, uh, the Chargers, I mean, it's a beautiful place. Oh, yeah. The Jets, I don't know if you want to be in New York. The Jaguars seem to be the most attractive. You And I think Urban Meyer is going there. I mean, that's what I hear. But you get you get the number one draft pick. You get an owner who's going to spend money. And you're in a division that you can possibly, you know, win or make the playoffs at least. I would say the most attractive would be the Chargers because you already have a quarterback that you feel like is going to be a, your franchise quarterback. You have a lot of weapons on offense. You have a defense with Joy Bosa, and uh, they have some other players yeah. uh, on that defense. There are not a ton of holes with the Chargers. I think they just need the right head coach to to elevate their play, fin- learn how to finish games. If you're if you're in a situation, you're looking at a situation of where I can go and win immediately, or have the best chance to win immediately. I think it would be with the Chargers. So I feel like every year we talk about during this time, the consideration of black coaches and are we overthinking why there's a lack of black coaches when the real issue is just the lack of prevalence of black owners and, and GMs. 
and they're more comfortable with just other white men, such as that the answer is that we need more black owners and GMs if we want more black coaches? Or is there something else that I'm not seeing? It's it's as, as simple as um, the owners not not hiring these uh, African-American coaches. I think uh, there also is a situation where you don't have enough African-Americans in the positions where the owner in, in the coaching positions that owners feel like are important for your head coach, whether it be offensive coordinator and quarterback coach, those two being, you know, from the offensive side of the ball. There's a ton of yeah. African-American defensive coaches, defense coordinators and things like that. But you want to see more offensive coordinators that are African-American and quarterback coaches, you know, that are African-American, whether it's like a guy like Byron Leftwich, okay. with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, enemy yeah. who's offensive coordinator in Kansas City, Pep Hamilton, who's a, who's a quarterback coach. Um, you know, so you just need more of those guys in those positions to open the eyes of the owners and say, hey, you know, these guys can get it done as well. What does it take to get London Fletcher on my sideline? Man. You never thought about being a defensive coordinator or a yeah, linebacker's coach? My wife. You got to convince her <laughs> to, uh, to uh, <laughs> you know, allow me to go spend that much time with uh, coaching the football team. It's, it's a ton of hours that the coaches put in. It's a, it's a tremendous sacrifice that you have, that your families have to have. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm there yet. So, look, to wrap up, I want to talk specifically about the Texans. Deshaun Watson took the Twitter to express his displeasure with the Texans with their new GM after his input on the new GM was apparently ignored. This is after last year's DeAndre Hopkins trade. You trade one of the top two wide receivers in the league uh, that, De- that Watson found out after the fact. How customary is it for teams to consider the input of their franchise quarterback when making uh, major personnel decisions? And how concerned do you think the Texans should be about Deshaun demanding a trade? It's not, um, you know, very customary. You know, a lot of times these owners, they're going to have a search firm or somebody that they they feel already in mind. You know, the, the problem that the uh, the Texans did is they brought Deshaun into the into the equation and, and told him it would be a part of the process. Now, that's where they yeah. made their mistake in, in getting his input. Put, and then, you know, from his standpoint, I guess, ignoring that input and not, not truly um, taking heed to his advice. That's where they made the mistake. They would have been just better off saying, hey, um, Deshaun, you know, not not even going to him, leaving him out of the conversation, leaving him out of the equation. Did you ever get brought into for a coaching change no, or anything no. like that? Um, I can, I can, um, you know what I say? I take that back. Maybe once they they may have asked my uh, opinion on maybe possibly a defensive coordinator or somebody, you know, I may have liked. But as far mm-hmm. as um, bringing in and coming in and sitting with the owner, you know, doing all those things and having, um, you know, multiple discussions. I never had that. I don't know any anybody who did, any players that, that had that those types of conversations. So that was the issue. They have they have to repair that relationship. I don't think the Texans will trade uh, Deshaun. I think that would be a huge mistake on their part. Um, you know, huge it's a situation mistake. where they just need to, you know, smooth things out. And I, and I know Nick Casario. I played with him in college. He was my uh, college teammate, the, the Texans' uh, new general manager. And I will say this about Nick. He went to John Carroll? John Carroll, man. He, he, was, he was my quarterback in college. If Deshaun allows Nick to do his, his job and gets to know Nick, Nick is one of the um, hardest workers. No, not even one of. He is the hardest worker, smartest teammate that I've ever had on any level. Tremendous integrity and character. He's going to um, set a plan and put a plan in place that are going to make the Houston Texans a better football team and they're going to put 
Deshaun in a better situation to compete for Super Bowls. If Deshaun was just able to get past the hurt that he has with the, with the uh, situation, I, I, I definitely know he will benefit from, from Nick Casario being there. There you have it. Thank you, my brother, London Fletcher, for joining us today on the Bakari Sellers Podcast. London, I want everybody listening to know I took time away from his daily um, golf game to come and sit <laughs> behind the microphone. <laughs> yeah, man. And now, now uh, London's also the second best athlete in his family behind his youngest son, who's a hell of an athlete. Give a shout out to your entire family for me, London, and have a great day, brother. Thank you. All right, I appreciate it. Before I let you go, and you know we always sing this hymn, Before I Let Go, I wanted to talk about one more thing, and that's Patriots head coach Bill Belichick. I wanted to give Coach Belichick his flowers today. Now, don't turn off the show right now, some of you Patriots haters. Not because of his record as a head coach. It's because of his decision this week to decline to accept the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Trump after last week's violence at the U.S. Capitol. This violence was incited by the president himself. Now, this is obviously the right decision for a host of reasons, but here's the part of Belichick's statement I want to elevate. Quote, recently I was offered the opportunity to receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which I was flattered by out of respect for what the honor represents and admiration for prior recipients, end quote. Belichick went on to say, subsequently, the tragic events of last week occurred and the decision has been made not to move forward with the award. Above all, I am an American citizen with great reverence for our nation's values, freedom, and democracy. With a few exceptions like Lynn Cheney, this is a lesson for Republicans, I hope, that you should have a line somewhere when it comes to Trump. Belichick clearly has his. But unfortunately, if you're South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham or Ted Cruz, you can have the president insult you or your family, and you'll still ride for him even when he sends a violent insurrection to your doorstep. Have a line you draw somewhere with Donald Trump. Bill Belichick does, and that's good for him. That's it for this week's episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We'll see you next Monday. Good.